Hello and welcome to the Friday episode of the Battleground Ukraine podcast with me, Saul David, and Patrick Bishop. Away from the battlefield, the big news this week was the visit by Chinese President Xi Jinping to Moscow, in which he demonstrated China's very firm support for Vladimir Putin and Russia. And all this, despite the decision a few days before by the International Criminal Court in The Hague to charge Vladimir Putin with war crimes, notably the forcible deportation of hundreds of Ukrainian children to Russia. We'll also discuss Britain's decision to include depleted uranium shells with the Challenger 2 tanks it's sending to Ukraine, a drone strike on a Russian train in the Crimea that destroyed cruise missiles, and a local Ukrainian counterattack southwest of Bakhmut that's forced Russian troops further away from the last remaining supply route into the beleaguered city. And in part two, as ever, we'll answer another great selection of listeners' questions. So to President Xi's state visit to Russia this week, well, the red carpet was well and truly rolled out and there were many schmaltzy references to their shared destiny and dear friendship, etc., etc. But to my mind, it must have been a bit of a letdown for Putin. If he was hoping that Xi would be offering unalloyed support for his war in Ukraine and his wider claim that Russia is engaged in an existential struggle with the West, he was disappointed. Now, an indication of the different positions was provided by the pre-meeting statements of both men. Putin spoke of a bipolar struggle against the US-led West. Xi would not go that far. In truth, the summit produced, in my view, few tangible results for Russia. The two autocrats pledged economic cooperation and to work together to shape a new world order. China also criticised the ICC's decision to charge Putin with war crimes. And yet, She barely mentioned Ukraine during his two-day visit and said on Tuesday in his final remarks that China had an impartial position. There was no indication that his much-touted role of peacemaker had yielded results, but nor did he make any offer of direct support for Putin's war in Ukraine. Well, the Institute for the Study of War summed up the lopsided nature of the summit as follows. It said, Putin has likely failed to secure the exact sort of partnership that he needs and desires, and Xi will likely leave Moscow having secured assurances that are more one-sided than Putin intended them to be. Meanwhile, Ukraine has cautiously welcomed China's role as peacemaker, albeit by stressing that a withdrawal from all Ukrainian territory is a minimum requirement for a ceasefire. So, Patrick, what do you think China is hoping to get from all of this? Well, I take a much less rosy view than you do, Saul, I'm afraid. I think this is a very ominous development. Uh, Basically, China signaled that it's firmly on the side of the Russians. Uh, They may not be actively supporting Putin with arms, at least not yet, but they've let him know that they're not going to let him lose. And the implication is that they'll feed practical support, both economically and if needed, militarily, to him to prevent that happening. Now, why are the Chinese doing this? Well, because I think they've calculated that the Ukraine war presents a great opportunity for them to achieve their fundamental strategic aim, the one that they've been pursuing uh, for the last century, really, and that's overturning the West's global domination and taking their place, i.e. China's place, at the head of a new world order. And Russia plays a useful part in this, but it still remains a very uh, junior partner. Uh, I, I think the Chinese have realised that the war is actually a godsend for them. It took them a little while to wake up to this, but I think they, in their view, um, by supporting Ukraine so vehemently, the West is now stuck to the tar baby. Uh, they, they've opened a pipeline which will 
drain weapons and political energy and wealth. And it'll be very hard to, to, to turn it off now. They're so dedicated to Ukrainian victory. But a, a Ukrainian victory is going to be pretty hard to realize, at least in the terms that President Zelensky's uh, defined it. So all China has to do is sit back, uh, allow uh, the West to weaken itself, if you like, and pave the way for the achievement of its own grand strategic aims, which, of course, include taking back Taiwan. So really, I think we're on the way to this becoming a genuine global conflict. Uh, please tell me I'm wrong, Saul. <laughs> well, we, we do disagree slightly on this, uh, Patrick. Um, I think there's a less sinister reading of the visit, personally. A good relationship with Russia obviously matters to Xi. There is shared geography, notably a 4,000-kilometer-long border that's very hard to defend, so they don't want war between each other. And the fact that both are authoritarian leaders who share grievances with the US-led global order she must have been hoping that a quick Russian victory in Ukraine would give him the green light to invade Taiwan. I, I agree with that, Patrick. But he's also been careful, as you pointed out, not to support Russia's invasion either diplomatically. I mean, I don't think there's been that much diplomatic support of the invasion or by supplying arms, as you say, bar some dual use kits, which we've been hearing about from the Americans in the last week or so. And this is the important thing. He's also criticized Russia's threats to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine, which, you know, in some senses is the only, you know, is the last card for Russia to play. So she has had to tread, in my view, very carefully over Ukraine. Um, but let's not kid ourselves what's going on here. He's also taken advantage of Putin's difficulties by tilting the trade relationship, notably by buying cheap Russian oil and gas. And it's moving more heavily in China's favor, that relationship. There's also the issue of China buying weapons from Russia. It's I saw an interesting statistic. Between 2016 and 2021, 81% of China's imported weapons came from Russia, according to the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, <laughs> which makes you wonder, you know, the quality of their kit. And in return, China provides advanced technologies such as microchips, which can have a military use, as I've just suggested. So the economic ties are undoubtedly strong. But the main reason, in my view, China wants Russia not to lose the Ukraine war it is a kind of defensive reason because it might lead to Putin's downfall. And that would mean an emboldened US might turn its full attention towards China. So we're both sort of arguing the same thing. But I think China is slightly more defensive and you think it's uh, being more aggressive. Now, meanwhile, China is positioning itself as a peacemaker uh, because when peace fails to materialize, as it surely will, Chinese officials can claim, however disingenuously, that they at least tried to provide a solution, unlike the West, which continued to supply Ukraine with weapons. It's all pretty fascinating, though, isn't it? Yes, I was particularly struck by Xi's remark when he was leaving. Putin came to the airport to see him off. And the body language was very much, I thought, that uh, he was the humble host, honoured that such a big shot should deign to drop in. And she said, um, in his parting, unscripted remark, you know, change is coming that hasn't happened in a 100 years. Now, I take that. I uh, don't know what you think, so, but I, I take that to be a reference to the foundation of the Communist Party of China, as it's officially known, back in 1921. And for most of um, this century that followed, the CPC has been fighting innumerable battles, first against its internal enemies in the shape of the nationalist Kuomintang, then its own population during the cultural revolution of the Mao era, which killed millions, a bit of an echo of the Russian history there. 
Uh, and finally, uh, it's now in a place to achieve its manifest destiny in the world as it sees it. And like, I think, agree with you, I think the Russians are useful uh, in that they supply cheap energy and they're keeping the West preoccupied in Ukraine. But that's as far as it goes. It's, it's a very imbalanced relationship. And we've got to remember, there's never been much love lost between the two great powers. So I wouldn't read too much into the talk of friendship without limits, etc. And I also agree with you with you about the Chinese peace proposal. I think I think it's just them establishing a narrative that they were always in favour of a peaceful solution, but their olive branch was uh, rejected uh, by the West. And again, just to end on a, a more cheerful note, I think China's more forward position does reduce the threat of a nuclear conflict. Um, they uh, finally, are, when it comes down to it, are in a position to order Putin not to escalate. And a nuclear war is really the last thing they want if their plan is to be realised. Phew. Um, well, that's a relief to hear you say that. But yes, I, I, I basically agree. OK, well, let's move on to the other important bit of news. And that was the decision by the ICC and The Hague to charge Putin with war crimes. And the reason this is significant is because it's the only the third time a serving head of state has been indicted. Now, Karim Khan, the ICC prosecutor, said that Putin had changed the law to make it easier for Russian families to adopt some of the 16,000 children who had been deported to Russia since the invasion in 2022. And he went on to say that there is, uh, you know, very good reason to believe that Putin bears personal responsibility uh, for what's happened there. Now, there are 123 countries that are parties to the ICC under the Rome Statute, and they include Britain and most European countries. And Putin is liable to be arrested if he visits any of them. But Russia is not a signatory, and nor is the US or Ukraine, as it happens. So will this change make any difference? What do you think, Patrick? I, I think that the ICC is fatally undermined by the fact that the US is not a signatory to it, a party to it. So, I mean, you know, Russia's completely within its rights to say, well, if the Americans don't think its uh, jurisdiction extends to them, why should we? So I think that is a huge uh, problem in it, its credibility. And, you know, uh, right on cue, Russia's response uh, was, was you know, very predictable. They said the warrant was, from a legal point of view, null and void. It was outrageous, unacceptable, all the sort of things you expect them to say. And even to the point where um, they're saying, you know, threatening that they're going to wipe out the Hague with a hypersonic missile, one of their... I mean, no, in fact, it was, it was uh, Dmitry Medvedev, who used to be thought of, uh, as being a sort of moderate, and he's now reinvented himself as a sort of hysterical Putinista. And so he was the one that was uh, saying that they, I think it was, he, he said the people in the Hague should look to the skies, the idea being that any minute now a hypersonic missile is going to descend on them. I'd love to think those missiles were accurate enough to actually hit the Hague. Now, I, I think we're being a bit jocular about this. But uh, nevertheless, again, we slightly uh, disagree on the on the tone of this, Patrick, because I think it is a big deal. Um, I, I mentioned the heads of state to be indicted. There were only two up to this point, President Omar al-Bashir of Sudan and Mohammed Gaddafi of Libya, a bit of a rogues gallery. Now, both were later ousted, if not actually tried by the court. So you can't say the ICC decision was fundamental to their ousting. But I think the broader point here is that Putin now has a target on his back, so to speak, and can't, you know, physically can't travel to a lot of countries that he's previously been welcome in. It will be hard, uh, whatever happens in this war, if not impossible for him to be welcomed back into the international fold. 
to go to the G8 conferences, for example, and former allies within Russia might, in my view, see this as yet another reason to withdraw their support uh, for Putin. The ICC, meanwhile, is well aware that other war crimes have been committed in Ukraine uh, and that this may just be the first step or the first charge against many that will be laid against Putin, uh, the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. And let's not forget the last point I'd like to make on this, that former President Slobodan Milosevic of Serbia was handed over to the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia to face trials for crimes against humanity after he fell from power in 2001. And I remember when those charges were first brought, I think in 1999, everyone was saying, well, of course, the Serbs are never going to hand them, hand him over. Well, they did after he was ousted from power. And something similar may, just may, happen in Russia one day. Yeah, I suppose it could be part of uh, a Russian rehabilitation strategy, which is pretty much what happened with Slobodan Milosevic in Serbia. Got to remember, of course, that Serbia is a very insignificant country compared to Russia. And the calculation, I think, in his downfall was that those around him decided they had to throw him under the bus if they were going to have any hope of getting the Western help they needed to put uh, Serbia back in on track after its um, war in, with the rest of its old partners in the former Yugoslavia. Libya, that was always a tin-pot dictatorship, wasn't it? So I'm not really holding my breath on this one, I have to say. Now, moving on to this uh, depleted uranium tank round story, Saul. Is that another storm in a teacup, do you think? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, this was uh, prompted by the announcement by the British Defence Minister Baroness Goldie uh, responding to a, a question in the House of Lords that, uh, and she admitted that depleted uranium shells would be delivered to Ukraine for use with the Challenger 2 tanks. Um, you probably remember them, Patrick, don't you, from from the Gulf War, where they were known as silver bullets. Um, and what I mean by that is they were capable of penetrating the heaviest tanks' armour. Putin's reaction, of course, or Russia's reaction, has been suitably hysterical. Uh, Putin said that Russia would be forced to uh, react since the collective West will start using weapons with a nuclear component. Defence Minister Sergei Shoigu added that there were fewer and fewer steps towards a nuclear collision. Now, this is all not absolute nonsense. They're referring to the fact that depleted uranium is a byproduct of uranium enrichment, which, of course, as we know, is a critical component of both nuclear power generation and the production of nuclear weapons. But there's no international ban on the use of these tank busting rounds. And to suggest that their use might lead to nuclear escalation is fanciful in the extreme. Okay, now on to the battlefield. Well, one interesting little incident, or not a little incident, Ukraine appears to have carried out another audacious drone attack on the train in Zankoy in uh, northern Crimea that was said to be carrying Russian-caliber cruise missiles, which have featured a lot in their attacks on, on infrastructure, etc. Um, and the Ukraine Defense Ministry said that a number of missiles were destroyed and uh, posted a short video, which includes a huge blast that can be seen in the distance. And the report's actually been partially confirmed by Russian sources who said that Zenkoi had indeed come under attack, but there was no mention of the cruise missiles or any deaths. Now, on to Bakhmut, there's a really interesting development there where the Ukrainians have launched a small counterattack to the southwest, which has pushed the Russians further back. Uh, and according to the latest intelligence update by the British uh, Ministry of Defence, this attack is likely to relieve pressure on the threatened uh, H-32 supply route, unquote. And um, further 
statements from the, from the MOD say that Vladimir Putin's army may be losing its momentum to capture the town after months of fierce fighting. Now, this seems to be a common theme, doesn't it, Saul? There's other Western intelligence assessments saying that the Russian offensive may now actually be coming to an end. Uh, do you remember, we didn't really know when it began. It wasn't sort of formally announced. And it, it was, took us a little while to realise this is actually it, you know, that the spring offensive is actually underway. Uh, and, you know, the general view now seems to be that it's actually coming to its conclusion and the Russians will now switch to defence in anticipation of the Ukrainian counter-thrust. Do you think that's what's going on, Saul? Yeah, there seems to be a sort of... You know, there are still Russian attacks, actually, we should mention, uh, not just uh, around Bakhmut, little attacks around Bakhmut. So the, so the Ukrainians have responded in a significant way, I think, because the whole point about that that last remaining supply route into Bakhmut is that once that goes, of course, the, the group inside are encircled and it's the beginning of the end. Well, that hasn't happened. And in fact, the corridor has been opened a little bit more. So the Russians seem to be continuing their attacks a little bit further out from the flanks of, of the jaws, uh, if I can get the sort of you know metaphor right, almost because they need to be seen to be attacking. There's, there's also attacking going on further north at uh, Avdika and also to the south in certain places. But these are minor, minor attacks, making very little ground and still costing casualties. So I think that the vaunted uh, Russian spring offensive, which we were talking about at least a month, if not a month and a half ago, has run out of steam now. And the question is, what's going to happen next as far as uh, Ukraine's concerned? Some interesting, a tiny little interesting bit on, on Wagner. We keep mentioning Wagner. Uh, the ISW, the Institute for the Study of War, is reporting that the mercenary group may now lose most of its remaining convict force in the coming weeks as former prisoners finish their sixth month military contracts and are granted pardons. And this information comes from the uh, Ministry of Defence. Uh, and it's basically saying that this is all part of the battle ongoing between Prigozhin and Russian senior commanders. Yeah, so these guys are now going back into having survived their tour with with uh, Wagner. They're now being fed back into Russian society. So expect to see crime rates soar, I think. Um, I don't know, sort of, if you saw the really interesting footage coming out of the backward front. There was a fascinating report from the BBC's Quentin Somerville and his cameraman uh, showing the reality of the Ukrainian trenches. You know, everyone's wading around knee deep in this very gluey mud and uh, showing them around with some uh, Ukrainian military minders. And it just made me think back to my days as a war reporter and how much you depended really on on the quality of these minders to make sure you got out of your uh, at your frontline visit alive. Uh, These ones certainly seem to know what they were doing. Yeah, that's not always the case, is it? Uh, Patrick, I remember you telling me about a a trip once to the Iran-Iraq war, absolutely sort of chilling moment back in the late 80s. Do you want to elaborate a little bit on that? Uh, Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well remembered, Saul. Um, Yeah, some minders definitely inspire more confidence than others. I'll just tell you briefly of a visit I made uh, to the uh, frontline. This was in... 1987, during the now forgotten but pretty epic uh, eight-year war between Iran and Iraq, which caused hundreds and thousands of casualties. Um, and the Iranians escorted a bunch of us uh, to uh, visit what they claim was a big victory that won in a, another long-forgotten battle, the Battle of Fish Lake, it was called. And uh, much of the fighting uh, in the south took, took place on either side of the Shat al-Arab waterway, and both sides had flooded vast areas to create barriers. So after a nightmare journey, 
through the darkness in a bus uh, where on either side we could see sort of shell fire flashes continuously. Our minders kept um, getting us lost. There were about a half a dozen of them, and they were supplied by the Ministry of Islamic Guidance. That's what the uh, propaganda department uh, in Tehran was called. And so we finally arrived at the starting point for the visit. We were going to be taken up to the very front lines. And in front of us, there was this long, narrow causeway across these flooded fields. And the Iraqi positions are clearly visible, less than, less than a mile away, I would say. And our transport was a few beaten up old Hilux pickup trucks. And strewn in the back for our protection were a few flimsy flak jackets and some battered old helmets. So we scrabbled to put them on, but the miners didn't seem bothered. Instead, they carefully unrolled these white strips of cloth, which they then wrapped around their heads. So we immediately said, well, what's, what's that for? What's that all about? And they said, oh, um, oh, this is a symbol of uh, martyrdom, and it shows that we're looking forward to death and entering paradise. Well, you can imagine how that went down. We said, oh, sure enough, the Iraqi gunner spotted us straight away, and shells began falling on either side of our column of trucks with us standing up in the back. We were screaming and shouting, banging on the roof of the cab, yelling at them to turn back, which, thank God, they eventually did. But, yeah, uh, there are definitely minders and minders. <laughs> Great stuff. Okay, well, that's all we have time for for part one. Join us after the break when we'll be answering listeners' questions. Welcome back. Well, we've had another bumper crop of listeners' questions, and the first one is from Adrian Dickinson in Hove, England. I think this is one for you, Saul. When in military history has a force with a massive deficit in artillery managed to inflict casualties at a ratio anywhere near that claimed by the Ukrainians in Bakhmut? I can't think of any. Can you? Um, I can, but we're going to have to go back to the 19th century for this. I mean, two two of the greatest disasters that ever befall British arms uh, and also one Italian. So the two British examples are the first one in uh, infamously in 1842, the retreat from Kabul, uh, when 16,000 set off and only a single man reached the destination of Jalalabad. That was Dr. Bryden. Now, admittedly, among this group, there were uh, about 12,000 civilians, and not all of them were killed, although a significant number were. But the army that was defending them, uh, 4,000 soldiers, some Indian soldiers and some British, was completely wiped out by Afghan tribesmen who were effectively armed with their knives, their curved knives, very uh, dangerous at close quarters, but also with their long uh, rifles, jaziles, which were actually matchlock packs. Patrick, so hardly state-of-the-art at the time, but uh, a combination of them knowing the terrain, a uh, series of ambushes, and they completely decimated the British force. And the British force had artillery on that withdrawal. And the other one, of course, that I've also written about was during the Zulu War of 1879, where the uh, part of a column of 5,000 soldiers, about 1,700, were left at the Campo de San Juana with artillery defending it, and they were attacked by a Zulu MP of up to 20,000 strong. So they definitely had the advantage in numbers, but of course, a huge technological disadvantage. The Zulus armed with a few muskets, which they basically fired and then threw away, but really just their short stabbing spears. And they closed with the British force, uh, British and um, African force at Isanwana and completely wiped it out. And the Zulus didn't have a single artillery piece. So there are some examples. And the third one, which I won't go into the details of, was at Adoa when the 
Italians were uh, destroyed by an Ethiopian army. Uh, and again, there was an imbalance in artillery. So it, it has happened. But 20th century examples, I can't think of many in the 20th century, I have to say. We've had a lot of uh, messages about someone called John Mearsheimer, who's a kind of uh, controversialist, I suppose, who pops up around the place saying that he thinks that ultimately Russia is going to win the war in Ukraine. Now, we spoke before about getting alternative points of view on the podcast. We don't want to be a, a monotone of, of kind of seeing things from a Ukrainian perspective. But, you know, we've looked into Mearsheimer and, and he's, he doesn't seem uh, to be very credible, I'm afraid. I'll, I'll just sum up the view, which I've got from several sources, actually expressed in, in a, a message to us from a, a chap called Roy Cornish, uh, who says um, he's a, a Brit with Ukrainian permanent resident status, currently living and working in Kiev. And uh, he he mentions the fact that Mirzhama's name came up last week, I think it was. And he said he's heard him talk and says that basically uh, he's not someone to be taken terribly seriously. And he he wonders you know where he's coming from. I've had this exactly the same response from our old friend Esko Krishlitsky, who says a lot of the narratives that uh, he spouts pretty much uh, exactly what Russian state media is saying. Um, so, yeah, when we're looking for people to present another point of view, I don't think we'll be reaching out to John Mearsheimer. No, seems to be a bit of a useful idiot spotted uh, there. We, we may be wrong, but that's that's the sense we're beginning to get. There's a very interesting one that uh, came in actually just before we started recording, Patrick, and this is from an anonymous uh, former senior British soldier who's already listened to our pod on Wednesday, the rather brilliant interview that you did with Mark Urban and we both responded to. Uh, and he writes, um, very much enjoying the pod and fully agreed with the judgments of Mark Urban on the last episode. Um, the great intelligence failure of 20 years ago, and he know, he has personal knowledge of this, was the presumption that Saddam Hussein had WMD. And you can hear all about this on a very brilliant uh, podcast, actually, ongoing at the moment uh, called Shock and War. That's a BBC podcast. Now, for the last 13 years, um, our senior British officer tells us, in this country, since Cameron came to power in 2010 and formed the National Security Council, the presumption has been that hard, heavy combat power was a thing of the past and that cyber was the coming threat. And yet, in the first year of this war, the 250,000 casualties so far inflicted, not one person has died from a cyber weapon. The truth, he goes on to say, is that the digital power has manifested itself through the creation, and this was Mark's point, of the transparent and precision battlefield to which uh, he alluded, and not cyber weapons. So his question is, has the obsession with cyber been as much of a misjudgment as the obsession with WMD? Patrick, what's your feeling about that? Yeah, I think that's um, a consensus, isn't it? It's developing around this. Uh, but underlying it is the futility of assuming that one can actually make any kind of reasonable prediction about how warfare is going to be in 10, 20, 30 years' time. We're seeing this with huge effect in Ukraine, as we keep saying. It's a war that no one ever saw they would see again on the soil of Europe. And yet here we are. And I totally agree with that point that what cyber has done and what technology has done generally is to enhance existing very old-fashioned uh, ways of going to war, notably artillery, as Mark said, pointed out brilliantly in, in the interview, which uh, anyone who hasn't listened to it should really go back because you, you will learn a huge amount from it. Yeah, so in truth, I mean, I think this is the point. We need a balance, really. Don't, it's not. I don't think um, our, our senior British officer is suggesting at all that we don't need a cyber capability. You could argue that the fact that we've got a very effective cyber capability 
And of course, um, you know, we've, we've, we've had our expert talking very eloquently about that, um, has allowed us to negate Russia's offensive cyber capability. So it's not like we don't need it, but we need a better balance between the two. And hard power clearly is something the British Army, the British Armed Forces are going to have to build up in the next uh, decade or so. Okay, we've got a question here from Roger Bentley, uh, and he says, one of the many great strengths of your podcast is it's cool and level-headed analysis from a distance. Thank you, Roger. I accept that the Western curse of 24-hour instant pontification and gotcha journalism concerning every event, but he thinks it's becoming a very dangerous addiction that we've adopted. The question is, do you consider the Ukrainian government's control and opaque attitude to news and journalists' access to the frontline events to be a good or bad decision? Um, well, I think like the answer to the last question, uh, a bit of both, frankly, um, you know, from, we'll come to you in a second, Patrick, because of course you, you know what it's like to be over controlled, as it were, by a government and whether that's a good or bad thing. But from my perspective, you can see absolutely what they're trying to do, which is to control the information, the information war, as it were. And to a certain extent, they've had a lot of success, but, there's also a bad sign when you're, you know, you're you're not allowing your own soldiers, for example. We had the case of the battalion commander saying, you know, we need to get more honesty with what's happening, the number of casualties we're taking, and what we require, frankly, to to uh, make an effective unit on the front line. Um, and you know, the word we're getting is he's been demoted. So they really are clamping down hard. They're doing it for a reason, but it, it is having unintended. Uh, unfortunate consequences, in my view. Patrick, what's your more sort of general feeling about this? I, I agree. I think uh, it worked at the beginning. It was the right strategy at the outset. But the longer it goes on, the more you create uh, an impression, if you're really clamping down on information, that you've got something to hide. And I think that's the point we're approaching now. And it will only get worse, I think, when the tempo of actual battlefield events Picks up. Things are very opaque at every level, actually, in the Ukrainian side. Um, we know very little about, you know, political infighting, which must be going on, military infighting, which must be going on. And I think in time it will get out. It's a, it's a fairly open, the foundations of an open society are there. And one way or another, it will leak out. And of course, when it arrives in the public domain from unofficial routes, it takes on a, a greater significance, has a bigger impact. And if it, it came officially, so it tends to distort the picture further. So, yeah, I think they need to be careful about this. OK, we've got a question here from uh, Seth Malak. Now, I just happen to have a cousin called Seth Malak. So I'm assuming this is the same person. He, he hasn't actually outed himself. But we've had a chat about uh, something similar about this. So uh, I'm just going to read it out. I thought the episode with Simon Seabag Montefiore was fascinating. I'm curious about the different perspectives on the causes of the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, particularly regarding the role of the US and NATO. Some narratives suggest that the US and NATO were involved in causing Russia's invasion of Ukraine, while others reject this notion. Could you provide analysis on these various narratives? Well, we're not going to go into this in any detail, Seth, uh, not least because we have covered this with lots of previous episodes. I mean, listen to uh, some of the episodes where we're doing a deeper dive into the history of Orlando Figes's, for example, in which he addresses this idea. Now, all of the experts we've spoken to are absolutely united in their belief that NATO cannot be blamed for this war. Was there some provocation at the end of the Cold War humiliation of Russia? Undoubtedly, should things have, have gone slightly differently? We had some interesting talk on this from the various generals we've spoken to. Uh, yes, is the answer. But you also need to get your head around the fact, and again, Simon's very good on this, is that that 
uh, Putin, from the word go, wanted to reshape the Soviet empire. I mean, that's really what it comes down to in the end. So whatever excuses they use, in the end, they wanted to bring a lot of countries that were part of the Soviet empire back under Russian control, and they were prepared to do it by force. So no, I don't think you can blame NATO. And the fact that NATO is now expanding as a result of this war is the price that Russia is going to have to pay, I'm afraid, for its aggression, because people like Finland and, and Sweden uh, and other places are naturally feeling very um, uh, unsafe. And Ukraine, too, ultimately, almost certainly, will become part of NATO. And whose fault is that? Well, I'm afraid you have to lay it at Putin's door. OK, I've got one here from Rob Barash. He's referring back to Stalingrad, which is a name that comes up a lot when we're discussing battlefield events. He says, if I recall the history correctly, the Stavka, that's the uh, Red Army High Command, fed just enough reinforcements into Stalingrad to keep the city from falling while tying down and attriting the German Sixth Army and also allowing the Red Army to build up strength for a massive counteroffensive on Stalingrad's flanks. Do you think that's what's what Zelensky and his generals are trying to do here? Well, I'll briefly say I think that's yeah, pretty much what they have in mind. What about you, Saul? Yeah, I do. I think it's a very good analogy. Uh, the, the difference, in my view, is uh, I don't think... I mean, what they did at Stalingrad so effectively, I think it was Operation Uranus, wasn't it, Patrick, uh, in November, late November 1942, uh, which ultimately leads to the, the surrounding of the Sixth Army in Stalingrad and, and its eventual destruction, was uh, an attack on either side of the Sixth Army. So it was it was a pincer attack. I mean, it was a canai attack and brilliantly carried out. Uh, and exactly as Rob has put it, I don't think the analogy is exactly the same in Ukraine because I don't think they're going to attack on either side of Bakhmut. I might be wrong. We've already seen a little counterattack. I think actually they are wearing down the Russians in Bakhmut, drawing more and more people in there, uh, but they're actually going to attack somewhere else. And the, the obvious place is to try and attack further to the south Zaporizhia, Kherson possibly, and uh, drive all the way to the Azov Sea and, and split Crimea from the, from the rest of the bridge that the Russians have, have created into Ukraine. So yes, uh, three quarters right, but I don't think the actual attacks can be on either side of Bakhmut. We'll see. Yeah, and I, I think the Russians have already assumed that's going to be uh, where the, the Zaporizhia area will be where the counterattack comes because there's been lots of reports of them uh, strengthening their defences in that area. Uh, one here from Tom. Uh, with the war now in its attritional phase and casualties mounting on both sides, can Ukraine's smaller man pool allow them to sustain the current tempo of operations beyond this year? So it boils down to, is Ukraine's spring offensive? It's now moving on. But I think we, we generally agree it's not going to be before May, aren't we? So is that their last throw of the dice? I'd say it probably maybe that's a bit too dramatic a way of putting it, but I think it would be quite hard if it doesn't produce not decisive but impressive results that Western commitment uh, in terms of support, military support and all the rest of it, diplomatic support, uh, will be uh, sustained at the current level. So I think a hell of a lot is riding on this. I agree, Patrick. Uh, where I disagree slightly with Mark, and I think I made this point on, on Wednesday's podcast, is that Mark Urban feels that they will get some results, but they'll be tactical. Uh, in other words, it's not going to be a big strategic breakthrough. I'm not so sure. I think I think with all the kit they're getting and how effective they've been with previous attacks and surprises, 
I think we may see something big in the in the coming months. But but again, you know, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. But the broader point is, is this their last real opportunity to win the war? It might be. We've got one here from Noah, who um, is probably our youngest listener. Thanks for listening, Noah. It's nice to hear we've uh, we've got some listeners of your age. He's at school. He says he's in year seven, which would mean he's eleven or twelve. And his question is: um, with the arrest warrant for Putin out now, this is from the ICC. Uh, how would he be arrested? And if an attempt is made, wouldn't that escalate the war? going against the West's war plan. Interesting scenario you sketched there, Noah. Uh, he goes on, keep up the great, uh, the good podcast. Thanks. Yeah, well, thanks to you. Um, yeah, so that sort of raises a kind of wonderful image of a sort of snatch squad going into the Kremlin <laughs> and grabbing uh, Putin and dragging him out. Uh, unfortunately, I think logistically that that's um, pretty unlikely to happen. What do you think, Saul? Yeah, it's not going to happen anytime soon, Noah. Um, th- there won't be an attempt to arrest him unless he's foolish enough to go to one of those 123 countries I mentioned. And of course, he's not going to do that. So as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, the significance of the ICC, in my view, is that it tarnishes Putin uh, forever. Uh, and, you know, while a lot of Russians may think, well, we don't care, you know, we're not party to all of this. I do think it makes a little bit of a difference to his standing as a world leader in the future and the possibility that he can continue as president. But but no, there's going to be no attempt to arrest him. He ne- may never be arrested, but nevertheless, the decision by the ICC, I think, will have some effect in the longer term. Uh, we, we're being corrected uh, on our pronunciation of Kia Ora here, which is actually not the right way to say it. Nick Gorge, who's uh, clearly writing from some position of knowledge in uh, in New Zealand, says that... Um, your Ukrainian pronunciation is far better than your Te Reo, which is the Maori language. The Kia in Kia Ora is pronounced K. So it's at, it should actually be said K Ora. Okay, K Ora, Nick, thanks for that. <laughs> now we've got quite a, uh, we, we like to lighten the mood just a little bit. Uh, we've been doing it um, as much as we can with, with questions. But there's a nice one here from Ian Leith in Cheltenham. Uh, I was wondering if it's the obvious place in Cheltenham. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, and he says there's been a long term and widely disseminated speculation that Putin has used a body double on occasions, including on his recent heroic trip to Mariupol. Does this hold any credence with you? Um, there's historical precedent for this, uh, as you will well know. Well, Hitler uh, famously did that. And so did um, Montgomery, actually, um, General Montgomery. I'm trying to think, were there instances where Churchill did that too, Patrick? Do you remember? Churchill, yeah. Everyone has done it at some point, it seems. Stalin. Stalin had uh, a guy called Rashid, I think, who was a sort of, you know, practically part of the entourage. Uh, Saddam Hussein had several. Sometimes they go to enormous lengths, you know, to... Plastic surgeries involve people spend, you know, vast amounts of time getting the gait, the kind of body language of their subject done perfectly. I actually have been looking closely at those, that recent footage of the, of the two visits to Mariupol and I think the other one was Crimea, wasn't it? And it, it definitely doesn't, there's something a bit fishy about it. It's a fairly good attempt uh, at an impersonation, but just things like, the hairline is, doesn't seem to me to be the one that we're all familiar with, uh, whoever it was turned up in Mariupol particularly. And also the kind of face, the um, particularly the chin. I mean, he's got a bit of a double chin, Putin, but not quite as pronounced as the person who appeared in Mariupol. So I think it's highly likely, certainly, as you say, historical precedents uh, abound 
to suggest that this is a real possibility. Okay, last question from Elias from Vermont in the United States. Huge fan. He says, uh, question is, um, we've heard a lot about the importance of land and air warfare, but has there been an appreciable naval component as well? It's a very good question because with the Black Sea, the Sea of Azov, you might have thought there'd be more naval action. Now, he goes on to say, it seems like the Black Sea in particular should be strategically important. Well, it is indeed. And if so, what is your take on the relative strength of the Russian and Ukrainian navies? Well, my take on this, Patrick, is that the Ukrainian Navy is very weak. And the reason it's very weak is because the main naval base was Sevastopol, and that was uh, kept uh, in Russian hands, as anyone knows, who's looked at the history of this over the last 20 years, very sort of controversial. One of the reasons, actually, for the invasion of Crimea is that Ukraine was beginning to talk about cancelling the lease uh, for the naval base there, and therefore Russia would have lost the sort of jewel in its crown in naval terms, um, the base at Sevastopol. And we can go all the way back to the Crimean War to understand the significance of that. So the reality is, Elias, as far as I'm aware, is, is that the Ukrainian naval capability is very small, Russia much greater. But I think the broader point about all of this, why haven't we seen more action on the uh, on the sea, is because it's incredibly dangerous to move ships around because they can be taken out by anti-ship missiles, which is exactly what happened to the flagship, the Moskva, early on in the conflict. So that's the reality. The R- Russian naval uh, strength is far greater than Ukrainian, but it hasn't really been brought to bear with possible amphibious landings in, in Odessa because uh, ships are so vulnerable. And this is really relevant to Britain's uh, naval capability, because we've got two massive aircraft carriers that we've poured a lot of money into. And clearly, given what's been happening in, in the Ukrainian war, they are quite vulnerable. Quite so. OK, well, that's all we've got time for. Do join us next Wednesday when we'll be speaking to another brilliant guest. Goodbye. Goodbye.